Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jordan, and I am one of the pastors here at eFree. I want to say good morning, everybody here in the auditorium, over in the venue, and anybody watching online, good morning. We're so glad you could all be here with us today. It's so great to be with you. If you're a guest with us today, we're so glad that you're here. I hope that you find our church service and our church to be welcoming and inviting, that people are friendly and kind to you here, and that you find a place to belong with us here at eFree. I want you to know that one of the driving principles of our church is that every person matters. We believe that you matter to God, and because you matter to God, you should matter to us. And so hope that you experience that from the greeting and the ushering, everything through the music and the message that you would say, yes, when I am here, I matter to God, and I matter to these people. So we're glad you could be with us today. We are going to continue our series in the Gospel of John by looking at the greatest sacrifice This moment when God, who became human in the form of Jesus, and he came to live among us, that he sacrificed himself for us, that this is the greatest sacrifice. Now, this may be a bit of an odd time to talk about it. Usually, we talk about this on Good Friday or on Easter, and we're getting ready for Christmas. And you go, you're thinking about the birth of Christ, not the death of Christ. But it really is, um, I think, the death of Christ, this greatest sacrifice moment that makes the birth um, so much, so worth celebrating. That it would be worth celebrating. Jesus came into the world, God came into the world, but it's even more so that he was willing to die in our place so that we could have eternal life. As we begin, would you answer this question to yourself? What causes you to worry? What causes you to worry? Is it... Um, physical pain? Is it sickness? Is it the thought of a loved one getting sick or dying? The loss of a son or a daughter, a brother or a sister, a mom or a dad, uh, a grandchild or a grandparent? Is it the thought of an economic or stock market crash that your retirement account disappears overnight? Is it the idea of losing a job that You have this means to provide for you and for your family, and then the next day it's gone. Is that what causes you to worry? Now, all those things, I think, are fair reasons to be concerned, that there are things that probably all of us in this room at some point have been concerned about. Now my question is, where do you go when you're worried? When those things come into your mind and you're concerned, where do you go? What do you think about? Do you just say to yourself, that's not going to happen? Or do you say to yourself that if it were to happen, I would just push through. I would grind it out. I would get through it. I would suck it up. I would get through. Or do you say to yourself, I'm talented. I'm likable. It's a good job market that if for some reason I lost my my job, I'd find a new one fast. Or do you just try to escape? You just go, I don't want to worry about it, I don't want to think about it, and so you pull out your phone and you begin to scroll through your favorite social media or sports website. Or do you turn on the TV and turn on your favorite streaming service and just watch a couple episodes of something that makes you forget about what you were concerned about? The reason that I ask that is because I think that those things are all good, so please don't hear me saying those things are bad. Family is good, having money in a bank account is good, having a job is good, having health is good. Those things are all good, but I think that we tend to try to build our lives on those things. We try to make them the foundation of our life, and we realize that they're flimsy. We realize that they're fragile, 
that they, why they're good and why they are important parts of our life, if we try to build our lives on those things, they lead to worry. Because we know they can be here today and they could be gone tomorrow. They could be here today and tomorrow, but maybe not the next day. And so it causes us to be concerned. So what do we do? So this morning, as we look at this greatest sacrifice, what I want to do is to give us two foundations that we can build our lives on instead. Foundations that are firm, that are not fragile, but they are steadfast. That they will be here today and they'll be here tomorrow and a million tomorrows after that. And so if we choose to put our feet on this rock and on this place, we won't have to worry about tomorrow, but instead we'll know that tomorrow is safe and tomorrow is secure. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for my friends here in the auditorium and over in the venue and anyone watching online. God, I, I pray that you would work on our hearts. God, I want to pray first for my friends that are hurting. My friends, that it's not a worry, it's a reality. God, that those people in this room that are hurting right now, that God, that life feels very unstable. God, I pray that you would meet them where they're at, and God, you would give them a place to stand. God, that they would see a better spot to put their feet. God, that you would meet them in their pain and their suffering, and God, you would comfort them this morning. God, I pray for the rest of us, that God, you would help us to use the, the, the warning sign of this worry to tell us that we've put our, our feet on a place that is not stable. God, would you help me to be clear and concise this morning? Would you use your word in a powerful way in our hearts and our lives? Pray this all in your son's name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in John chapter 19, verses 1. Verse 1 is where we're going to start. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to John. Um, John's in the New Testament, so it's towards the back of your Bible. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, go to the right, you'll find John. If you get to Acts, Romans, Corinthians, you're too far to the right, go to the left, you'll find John. Um, if you didn't bring your Bible, you can follow along on the screens. So we, as we begin, I want you to know a couple things. One, we are going to work through all these verses. There's a number of verses we're going to cover today. We're going to work through them. I'm going to try and point out to us the important things that are occurring in the passage. And then we're going to pivot to look at these two foundations that we can build our lives upon that are sure and steadfast. So if you've not been here the last couple of weeks, what you need to know is that Jesus has been betrayed by a close friend named Judas. He was one of his disciples, one of his close friends. He betrays Jesus to the Jewish religious authorities who hate Jesus and they want to kill him. And they've been looking for an opportunity to grab him in a place that the crowds are not going to revolt against them. So Judas gives them this place and this opportunity in a garden in the middle of the night. And they come and they arrest Jesus like he's some criminal. And Jesus goes with them, and they begin to interrogate Jesus. They're looking for some accusation they can lob against them that they can get him crucified for. And they ask him if he's the son of God, and he says, you say as much. And they say, that's blasphemy. You can't be the son of God. And so they take him to Pontius Pilate, who is a Roman governing authority who has the authority to crucify Jesus, to condemn him and crucify him. And so last week, Jesus was on trial, and part of the trial occurred, and we're going to pick up this text in the middle of the trial. Chapter 19, verse 1 says, Then, Jesus took, sorry, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. So what you need to know is that there's three different forms of flogging that the Romans would use. 
They had a less severe but very not pleasant form of flogging. And then they had the most severe form that they would do prior to execution. And so most likely, it's possible he's experiencing the severe one, but I think in this moment, and some Bible commentators would say that he is experiencing the, the less severe form, that they would beat you with wooden rods, and they would beat you and beat you and beat you, and then they would say, okay, he's had enough, we're going to send him home, and he is going to learn his lesson. He, whatever he did, he won't do again. And so it's possible that they are trying to teach Jesus a lesson, that what's going on is that the Jewish religious leaders want Jesus dead. Pilate has already said he thinks Jesus is innocent. He hasn't done anything worthy of crucifixion. And so he knows they want a pound of flesh. So he says, I'm going to give them the pound of flesh, and then maybe that'll be enough for them to say, you know what, we don't actually need to crucify him, let him go. Verse 2, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. And so they are mocking and belittling Jesus. That it's possible that they're going to belittle him and that he's going to be the sympathetic figure. Is what It's possible Pilate's trying to do. Is that when they bring him out, the crowds will go, look at this guy. Like, we really want to kill this guy? Look at him. Let's just let him go. Verse 4. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. So this is the second time that Pilate has said, This man is innocent. So the first one comes back in John 18.38, where he says that Jesus hasn't done anything worthy of crucifixion, that he's innocent. So he says it to him a second time that he is innocent. And then he says, here is the man. Like He's saying, look at this guy. Like, you really want me to crucify this guy? Verse 6, as soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the son of God. So his attempt to get their sympathy has failed. They see him, they don't have any sympathy, they want him dead. And so they shout, crucify, crucify. Pilate, for the third time, says, he hasn't done anything worth crucifixion. He's innocent. You take him and crucify him. Now, Pilate is mocking them to a certain extent because only the Romans had the ability and the authority to crucify someone. The, the Jewish religious leaders can't do this. So they said, no, he claimed to be the son of God. Our law says he has to die. You need to kill him. Verse 8, when Pilate heard this, that he claimed to be the son of God, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. So why does Pilate get so afraid when he hears that Jesus might be the Son of God? Why doesn't he just say, whatever? But instead he gets afraid. I think because he's a Roman. And so if you remember back in school when you covered Greek and Roman mythology, the, the Greeks and Romans believed that the gods existed in the heaven, and they would come down and fraternize with mortals, and then you would have these part man, part God people, these demigods. I think that he is concerned that he has this demigod, and so he goes, what's going on here? So then he goes and asks Jesus, where do you come from? And I don't think that he means, like, are you from Nazareth? 
Are you, like, where are you from? He means, like, are you from heaven? Do you come from Olympus? Or, or do you come from earth? Where do you come from? Because this is his worldview that he's working out of. But Jesus won't answer him. Jesus won't say, yeah, I am fully God and fully man. That I am God come in human form. He won't say that. Why? Why won't he answer these kind of questions, but he's going to answer the question we're about to see? I think because currently it is the Jewish religious leader's word against silence. That if you remember through the Gospel of John, if you've been traveling with us, over and over and over and over again, it's the Jewish religious leader's word against Jesus' word. And every single time he wins. Every single time they try to trap him, they try to trick him, he wins. He answers them and he escapes whatever trap or plot they have, he gets out of it. And in this moment, he knows, I'm not supposed to get out of this. So the only way the Jewish religious leaders can win is if he stays silent. If it becomes his word versus their word, he's going to get freed. And the purpose that he came was to be a sacrifice. The purpose by which he came into the world was to become a sacrifice for all those who would trust and believe in him. That he would exchange himself on the cross for them. And so he goes, this is what has to take place. And so I can't answer these questions because if I did, they would release me. And the Father's plan would not come to fruition. So he doesn't answer. Verse 10. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you. Jesus answered. So now he answers him. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. So I think that Jesus is referring to God, but he could be referring to Caesar. He's saying somebody above you has given you authority over me. That if they didn't give you that authority, you'd have no power over me. It could be mean that Caesar put you in power over this little corner of the world, but it could also be meaning that in God's plan and purpose, he is using you and your choices in this moment, and that's why you have power over me. That if it wasn't for that, you would have no power over me. But then he goes on and he says that the, the one who handed me over to you has done a greater sin. I think he's referring to Caiaphas and the high priests, or the the Jewish religious leaders who should have recognized that he is the Savior, that he is the Messiah, that he is God in human form come to them. They should have recognized this, but they rejected him and now they want him executed. And because they're the ones that have brought Jesus to them, they have done a greater evil. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. So Pilate wants to let him go. He's looking for opportunities to release him. But each time he tries, each turn, the Jewish religious leaders say, if you let this guy go, you are no friend of Caesar. This guy claims to be a king. We know that anybody, there's only one king, there's only one king in the Roman Empire and it's Caesar. Anybody else who pops up and decides they're going to be king in the Roman Empire, they're an enemy of Caesar, and they have to be executed. They have to be killed. So here's what they're doing to Pilate. They're saying, Pilate, you have a choice. The choice is you can execute the man we're telling you to execute, or you can execute your career. That if you say you're going to release this guy, we're going to go to your supervisors, and we're going to say, hey, Pilate had a guy who was claiming to be king. He claimed he was the king of the Jews in the Roman Empire, and he let that guy go. 
says, that's the end of your career, Pilate. That's the end of the power and the authority that you have over this little realm of the world. So he's got a choice. Do I crucify an innocent man who I three times have said, there's nothing this guy's done that's worthy of execution? Or do I crucify my career and know that this is the end, that they're going to go and ruin me? Verse 13, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. The Pilate says, this guy's not worth my career. One innocent man's not worth all that I worked for, all that I planned to do, and he says, crucify him. So he hands him over to them. And at this point, the soldiers will take charge of Jesus, and then they will severely flog him. That they would have whipped him with this whip that had a metal hand, a wooden handle, not a metal handle, a wooden handle, and had multiple whips coming out of it. And at the end, they would tie bits of metal or bits of bone that when it hit the back, it would shred a man's back. And they would whip him and whip him and whip him until most likely there would be bone and organs exposed. And they'll whip him until he's about an inch or two of his life. And then they will take him and crucify him. Verse 17. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So when we think a lot of times of him carrying his cross, we think of the, the, the T structure. But most likely, Bible scholars tell us that he would have just carried the cross beam. That the, the vertical beam would have already been in place at Golgotha where the execution was going to occur. And they would put the cross beam on him and would make him carry it to his place of execution. Now, the other gospel writers will tell us that Jesus, because of the whipping, because of the beating, he collapses along the way, that he can't carry the beam the whole way. And they'll pull a man from the crowd and force him to carry it the rest of the way. And then when they get to the place that the execution is going to occur, he'll lay it on the ground, and then they'll lay Jesus on top of it. Verse 18, there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So they get Jesus to the place of execution and they would stretch out an arm and they would drive a nail through his wrist. And one of the things that I learned as I've been studying this passage is that in this time period, they consider your hand to be anything that goes from the tips of your fingers to about the middle of your forearm. So when later Jesus will say, come and look at the nail marks in my hands, he can easily be meaning his wrist. Like there is um, no um, disconnect there, that he could be meaning his wrist when he says hands. And so they nail through this arm, and then they will take and dislocate both shoulders as they rip the other arm to the other end of the beam and they drive another nail through it. And then they'll move his clothes and they will lift him up onto the cross and they'll put it in place. 
And then they'll put his charge above him, what he's convicted of. And what he's convicted of is being Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Verse 23. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided them into four shares, one for each of them. But the undergarment remaining, this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lots who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. So this is what the soldiers did. So Jesus has five articles of clothing and there's four soldiers. So they each take an article of clothing, but then this fifth one they gamble for. It's valuable and so they don't want to tear it apart and each person just get a little chunk of cloth. And so instead they gamble for it. And this fulfills an Old Testament prophecy about Jesus. And so he hangs on this cross, bleeding, exposed, and they try to humiliate him and belittle him. And the way that crucifixion works is your body weight hangs down and your arms get extended and it causes your lungs to contract so that you can't um, expand them to get air. And they drive a nail through your heels and so you're twisted like this. And in order to get oxygen, you have to push up on your heels that are nailed to the cross and you get enough oxygen to breathe again. And you do that over and over and over and over again until either you pass out from, losing the, from loss of blood or you can't, out of exhaustion, raise up again and you suffocate. And so they leave Jesus in this position. So now we're going to jump down to verse 28. So Pastor Adrian is going to cover verses 25, 26, and 27 next week. So I encourage you to come back and listen to that. Verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So he bows his head, he gives up his spirit. After he declares, it is finished. And one of the things that strikes me in this passage is that it says he gave up his spirit. He, it wasn't taken from him. It wasn't that he couldn't hold on to it any longer, that Jesus lays down, lays down his life. No one takes it from him. So even in this, he gave up his spirit, that it was his choice. So we aren't going to read the verses, but I want you to know in verses 31 through 37 is that after Jesus dies, the Jewish religious leaders ask a Pilate, if they will break the legs of all the men so that they will die quickly because they want to take them down off the crosses before um, Sabbath the next day because it would desecrate the Sabbath. So Pilate approves this. The soldiers go back. They break the legs of either man on either side of Jesus. But when they get to Jesus, they see he's dead already, and so they don't break his legs. And for whatever reason, whether they just wanted to or whether they wanted to make sure that he was dead, they took a spear, and they drove it up through his side and went through his lungs and into his heart. And when they pulled the spear out, water and blood gushed out. And so John makes a point to say he was dead. He wasn't mostly dead. He wasn't somewhat dead. He wasn't faking. He wasn't, it wasn't a hoax. He didn't like take something to slow his heart rate down. He was dead. But they pierced his lungs and his heart. He was dead. That he is confident of that. So now... Those are the verses we're going to cover today, and what I want to do is I want to pivot from those verses, and I want to pivot towards the two foundations, 
the two foundations we can build our lives upon that are going to be here today and tomorrow and a million tomorrows after that. And this first foundation is that Jesus is Savior and King. Jesus is Savior and King. That throughout the Gospel of John, John has been trying to point out and make it very clear Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. And in this section, as we look at the crucifixion, he's also pointing out that Jesus is the king. He is the king of the Jews, but he's also the king of everyone else and everything else. He is the king come to claim his kingdom. In John 19, 2 through 3, it talked about how they forced a crown of thorns onto him. So they crown him as king. Now, they're mocking him. They're trying to belittle him, but they did crown him. And then they put a robe that was a royal color on him. They clothed him as king. And then, though they were being sarcastic when they said, Hail, King of the Jews, they were recognizing him as King of the Jews. Then in 1914, when Pilate introduces him to the crowd, he proclaims, Here is your king. That is this proclamation. He goes out before him and says, This is the King of the Jews. And then, when he is executed, what is above him in the three main languages of the day. So when everybody walks by, every single person, what they see up there is that this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And so it's possible, in an ironic way, that John sees this as a coronation. He says this, this is Jesus taking his kingdom. That they crowned him and they clothed him and they recognized him and they announced him and they lifted him up as king. But then he's also the Savior. If you think of John 3, 14, and 15, we go back to those verses from earlier in the Gospel of John, when Jesus is talking with a man named Nicodemus. Um, so he's a Pharisee who comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, and he's asked Jesus a number of questions. And I think Nicodemus is being sincere. And part of the answer Jesus gives is this. He says in John 3, 14, and 15, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So if you're not familiar with this story, Jesus is referring to this event that occurred in the Old Testament where the Israelites had rebelled against God and they had been attacked by snakes. And people were dying left and right. And Moses goes, what do you want me to do, God? People are dying. What do we do? Would you have mercy on us? And God says, I want you to make this metal object of a snake and I want you to put it on a cross and I want you to lift it up. And when people in faith look at this and say, God, would you help us? We're doing what you're asking us to do that we'll be healed. And this is temporary life that they're receiving, not eternal life, but they'll be healed in that moment. And Jesus is saying, I am the better object. I am the true fulfillment of this, that I am coming, that when I am lifted up on the cross, when people look at me in trust and faith, not literally look at me, but in trust and faith, they turn to me and they say, that is my Savior, that is my King, that's what I hope in. He says, they will have eternal life. Then in John 12, 32 and 33, it says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. That Jesus, throughout his ministry, he knew that the cross was at the end of it. He knew this is where my life is headed. It's headed towards the cross. That this is why God has sent me into the world that God the Father and I, we've worked out this plan that I will come and I will die as a sacrifice in the place of all those who would trust and believe, that I am going to be the Savior of the world, but I'm also the King of the world, that I am Savior and I am King. And, and all of this, I hope that what you know is that God has not lost control, 
that Jesus has not lost control, that he didn't have a poor defense attorney. He wasn't overpowered by the Romans or overpowered by the Jewish religious leaders. They didn't outsmart him or trick him, that this was the accumulation or the, the pinnacle of the plan was that he would die as a sacrifice for his people. That he remained in control in all of this. Now, I also hope that you know that I don't think God caused anybody to do anything. I don't think he caused Pilate to choose his career over Jesus' innocence. I don't think he caused the Jewish religious leaders to hate Jesus or to turn against him. I think they freely chose that this is what we want to do. We do not like this man. We do not like him, and we want to destroy him. But God used their choices and used all this, and he orchestrated it so that Jesus would be the sacrifice for all of us. So this is a place we can build our lives that will be here today and tomorrow and the day after that for a million tomorrows. That it is never going to cease that Jesus is our Savior or that he is our King. The second foundation we can build our lives on, the second foundation is that Jesus says it is finished. Jesus says it is finished. In John 19.30, when he had received the drink, He declared, it is finished. What is it? It is the work of salvation that Jesus accomplished on the cross, our salvation, that he completed it. He finished it. There's not more to do. He has completely and utterly finished it. This was his task that he had came to accomplish, that he drank drank the cup of wrath till there was nothing left, that he absorbed all of it on the cross. And so now... All we do is we receive. We believe in Jesus and we receive his work on our behalf and then we apply it day after day after day. That we think about and we look at Jesus justifying us, making us right with God on the cross. And this is what we apply day after day. This is what we work on, is living out of that. We don't add to, we don't refine, we don't do anything with Jesus' work. Jesus' work is finished and it's complete We just receive it and we apply it to ourselves, apply it to our lives. So I have this photo of Starry Night by Vincent Van Gogh. So pretend with me for a moment that by some miracle of um, time travel, we're able to go back in time when Vincent is painting this. And Vincent gets this painting done and we're standing over his shoulder watching him and he steps back and he says, it is finished. It's finished. And then he takes it off the easel and he turns, it, turns around and he hands it to us. And he says, this is my gift to you. I just want you to receive this gift. Would you receive this? And you take it. You go, thank you, Vincent. And then you step around him and you put it back on the easel. And you go, it's not finished. Let me, let me add a little bit to it. And you begin to do some things. And you work until it turns into that. Some of you laugh, but some of you are like cringing. You're like, no, like, this is a masterpiece. And you destroyed it. Like, what have you done? Like, how much more should that be our heart for the finished work of Christ on the cross? That we should say, it is finished. Me adding to it is not going to do anything but diminish its work in my own life. But diminish how I see it in my own life. If I, see, if I think that it's incomplete, But instead what we do is we take it and we hang it on our wall. We take this masterpiece, 
given to us, and we put it on the wall. And day after day, we dwell on it. We go, look at how incredible this is. Look at what this has done for me. Look at the joy that I, I get from this. Look at what this means for my life. And so we build our life on this foundation where Jesus says, it is finished. He doesn't say, it's been started, go get after it. He doesn't say, good luck. He says, it's finished, it's done, I completed it. Would you receive it? So we can build our lives on this, that we have been made right with God, we have value, we are important, we matter, because Jesus declared it is finished. That's where we put our feet, which means I don't have to be dad of the year in order to be important. That whether you're the greatest parent or the worst parent, it doesn't matter because what matters is that Jesus Christ died for you. And he declares it is finished. That it doesn't matter if you're the best Bible reader or the worst Bible reader, Jesus finished the work for you. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of money in your bank account or no money in your bank account because Jesus finished the work for you. It doesn't matter if you're healthy or you're not healthy. That's not what makes you important. That's not what gives you life. It's that Jesus died for you. So we build our lives here on this foundation, on this moment in history where Jesus said, it is finished. And we go back to that day after day and we go, Jesus, thank you. That you gave up your life for me, that means that I matter. Jesus, thank you that you gave up your life for me, which means I'm accepted. So I don't have to work for your acceptance. I don't have to work for your love. I don't have to work for your care because you cared for me. You died for me in that moment. And so that means that I matter. And we come back to this, and this is where we build our lives. And if we build our lives here, we will have a firm foundation that is not shakable. And it will transform how we see ourselves and how we see the world around us. And so we come back to this and we say, it is finished. And when we have that temptation to judge ourselves or to condemn ourselves because we didn't pray enough today, we say, no, it is finished. And we pray because we want to be connected to the one who says it is finished. But we don't say, I am accepted or not accepted based on how much I prayed or how much I read the Bible. Those are tools that are great tools and lead us into a deeper relationship with Jesus. And that's why we do those things. Not so that he'll love us, not so that he'll accept us. And so we live on this belief that it is finished. So as we close, the question that I have is this. Is this Jesus this crucified Savior, is he your Savior and your King? That like, stop and think that there is no other King who would die for his subjects. There was no other King who would stay silent under accusation so that he could go and suffer for them. There was no other King like him. There was no Savior like him. Is he your Savior and is he your King or is he just your Savior but you won't bow to him as King? And just say, yes, Jesus, I want you to rescue me, I want you to redeem me, but I don't want you to tell me how to live my life. Or, is he your king, but he's not your savior? Is he your king where you say, yes, you can tell me how to live, but I can never measure up to that standard, and so I condemn myself day after day after day because you're not my savior, you're just my king that tells me how to live, and I fall short of that. Is he your savior and your king? And then the next question is, are you building your life on the sure foundation of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Is this where you build your life, or are you building it on one of these other places that are fragile, that, that are good things, but if they become the bedrock of our lives, 
our lives will be fragile. That family is great, but if it's all we have, then it is one accident away from being gone. If money is all we have, it is one stock market crash away from being gone. If our job is all we have, then we are one bad interview, one bad conversation away from losing everything. But here we have a savior and a king that we can build our lives on his life and his death and his resurrection that is gonna be here today and tomorrow and a million tomorrows. They don't have to wonder, is he gonna still be resurrected tomorrow? Is he still gonna be king tomorrow? Is he still going to love me tomorrow? The answer is yes and always. If we build our lives there, we can have this, this position that it might be hard at times, it might be difficult, it might wonder at times, but it can't be taken from us. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you. God, we thank you. For those of us that are in this place where we built our lives on you, that you are our Savior and our King, we just get to say thank you. We get to say thank you that you rescued us, that we get to day after day dwell on this fact that our Savior, our King, our God, he hung on a cross and he declared, it is finished, and then he gave up his life in our place that after he had been brutalized, he rescued us. And God, I pray that you would help me and you would help my friends in this room and in the venue and online to live out of that. God, that we would not exchange sure foundations and solid rock for shifting sand of things that are good, but things that will not last. God, we thank you that you are our Savior, you are our King, you are our Lord. Thank you that you never abandon us or leave us, you never forsake us, and you give us a hope and a future that is steadfast. God, I pray for my friends that, that are worried right now that they would move to a place of security with you. God, for my friends that are hurting right now, I pray that they would find you to be the king that comforts them, the king that knows what it is to suffer, who can say, I understand your suffering, and I can meet you in it and walk you through it. God, we love you and we pray this all in your son's name.